analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. A lovely day for some talk radio. It is uh, overcast and currently raining here in Kamloops. Uh, we're going to spend a large portion of this show reflecting back on getting reaction from, uh, getting an assessment of, a look ahead where it's going to go all around this public inquiry that was launched yesterday by the Premier, Finance Minister and Attorney General into allegations of rampant money laundering in this province. Uh, we got three pretty good people to discuss this with, including uh, BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver will join us in a little bit. Uh, we'll also talk to a man who knows a thing or two about public inquiries, former Attorney General and Chair of the Missing Women's Inquiry of Commission, Wally Opal. And our first guest, a uh, real pleasure to join to the program, former Crown Counsel, trial lawyer and columnist with the National Observer, Sandy Garasino. Good morning, Sandy. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. My God, there's lots to talk about. <laughs> okay, um, I know that uh, you've been keeping a very careful eye on this. Uh, BC Supreme Court Justice Austin Cullen was named as the Commissioner of the Money Laundering Public Inquiry. Uh, before we get into uh, if he's the appropriate guy or not, uh, what do you know about him personally? Well, I actually uh, worked with Austin from my my baby prosecutor days years and years and years ago. Um, just uh, Just a phenomenal... Uh, trial lawyer, an excellent prosecutor, really, really knowledgeable, and he's been a uh, uh, Supreme Court justice uh, for almost 20 years now. I think he was first appointed in 2001. He is really um, first rate, uh, and and British Columbians should have a lot of confidence in him personally. That said, uh, you raised the point on social media yesterday that perhaps the province or uh, the NDP government should have gone out of province. Uh, to seek their commissioner in this particular public inquiry. I assume that's not any slight at Mr. Cullen, but um, why Why, and, and are you happy with, with the pick that they made? Well, if you're going to go inside the province, um, you can't do better than Austin Cullen. Um, I just generally feel, <clears throat> excuse me, I just generally feel that this issue is so fraught and it, there are such labyrinthine connections internally in British Columbia. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we're kind of a small town here. I, 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 my, my gut just says I, I would have gone uh, to an external person. I mean, even look at someone like Peter German, who has connections to BC, RCMP. There's, everything is tied to everything. Uh, and, and German has a long-standing connection to to the RCMP, which which is in its own way um, uh, dragged into this as well. So it's just sort of the uh, the incestuous connections within the province. Any concerns on your end about uh, people? Because I quietly in the back of my head this entire time, considering the mammoth amounts of money we've seen involved in this thing, um, I've wondered if there's people taking cash out there. Well, this is the danger about um, uh, anything where, I mean, we all know about the ludicrous volumes of cash, just the weight of it, the weight alone. I mean, there are people who are experts in moving physical cash in $20 bills. The, that just screams out danger of public corruption to me and without even looking at any individuals or saying anything about any individuals to me this is like uh you know you've got a, a building and it's dark and moist and warm should you be worried about mildew 
I didn't know shame, should you? <laughs> I mean, you, you, when, you, when you create exactly the circumstances that uh, foster and, and the ideal and perfect circumstances for public corruption, you're probably going to have public corruption somewhere. And it's just, it's just ordinary, prudent, good governance to start reviewing that and checking for that. The public inquiry was established because the uproar uh, among the people here in BC with revelation after revelation for some kind of accountability, some kind of consequence, uh, grew too loud for the province to ignore, so they've launched this thing. Uh, I look back at, at so many angles of this where no major prosecution has managed to be successful. Uh, even Sam Cooper, who's been amazing on this front, uh, pushed out of the story this morning about an alleged kingpin of the Chinese crime cartel. Uh, and you read this story, and every case they put against this guy has fallen apart. Uh, from your perspective, is this is this the RCMP not doing the job right? Is this uh, Crown Council's not putting the case together correctly? Because I think a large part of the frustration uh, out there, Sandy, is that we cannot find or get these guys in front of a judge, in front of a jury, and have a successful prosecution and throw them in the slammer. Well, these prosecutions and investigations are incredibly expensive for starters and and we have never had the political will uh at the federal level uh, or at the provincial level to properly and adequately resource the kind of expertise that you need to have to successfully tackle this problem um and you know there's a there, one of the reasons why white collar crime pays so incredibly well is that it's so much cheaper just to go after petty crooks and the low-hanging fruit. The numbers ring up, the police look great, everybody's happy, oh, look, you've got lots of, you're getting all the, all the criminals. And that's, that has been to the aid and benefit of the worst criminal class that there is, which are uh, the, the corrupt business class and the and the and wealth and the transfers of wealth and the ways that that has operated to the detriment of the public just the sheer tax volume that we have um we've missed out on the tax resources if we've been able to capture that wealth so to get back to this uh i think that one of our biggest problems on the policing side has been to develop and maintain very solid uh, expertise, including bringing in from the private sector, because there is so much in the way of banking, gray banking, and the transfer of, of capital and that sort of thing that is very, very difficult for ordinary uh, police resources to capture if they don't have that expertise. So that's what I, that's what I would pinpoint, but it costs a lot of money. Um, so the, another area that we could uh, get some benefit from is to really go after civil forfeitures. And that might help fund the, this kind of expertise. In terms of reference, uh, I hope you had a chance to take a look at them uh, as we now look ahead and, and try and determine if this public inquiry is going to be successful. Uh, do you like how it's been formatted? Do you like the terms of reference or do you have any concerns? Um, I. I do. I'm not an. I'm not expert in the areas of, of public inquiry. It would be very, very interesting to hear Wally Opel's comments um, on the terms of reference. 
I like the compelability not only of testimony, but also the ability to obtain um, uh, records and to and to go in on reasonable and probable grounds and and, and get materials. Uh, I think that's going to be very significant. The other thing that I especially like is that we haven't put a price tag on this uh, because this is not going to be cheap. But um, you know, it's not it's it's not an inexpensive process to keep uh, to maintain the integrity of your systems. And if you don't do that, the cost is much much higher relative to what we have lost in terms of affordability, in terms of human life, in terms of the cost of the uh, emergency services and policing services over the fentanyl crisis, uh, in terms of what what we've given away on um, provincial sales tax refunds to the funneling of of money out through luxury cars, in terms of the the, uh, corruption inside the casino industry, relative to all of those costs and just the devastation of human lives, uh, whatever this inquiry costs is going to be a tiny, tiny fraction. Yeah. Sandy, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day. Thanks so much for calling me, Shane. Appreciate it. That's Sandy Garasino. She's a former trial lawyer, also a national columnist with the National Observer. Uh, always makes some very, very interesting points. Uh, we're going to continue this vein of conversation on the money laundering inquiry that was struck yesterday. On the other side of this commercial break, BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver will join us. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Your opinion, call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Pleasure to welcome to the program the leader of the BC Green Party, Andrew Weaver. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Uh, Very well. Thanks for having me on, Shane. Yeah, always appreciate having you on. Okay, Uh, you long lobbied for a public inquiry into money laundering. Yesterday you got your wish. Uh, Do you like what you see? do uh there's uh we're we're, we're very very uh, pleased to see that the bc government has listened to the calls for a public inquiry and we're also pleased with the uh fact that it's got a limited time frame uh and it's uh it, uh, so we're very pleased one of the things that uh, everyone looks to andrew as you know is the the charbonneau commission of inquiry in quebec it's cited as probably one of the more successful ones struck it put people in jail politicians resigned they went after money yada 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 uh that's all good and dandy yep. Are you concerned in this particular case because so many of the allegations and potential players in this are not people within the province as it was that case in Quebec? We're dealing with Russians, Chinese, uh, people overseas. We've got we to work with the federal government. I mean, is, is this thing fraught with potential, potential walls and, and challenges? Uh, no, I'm not concerned with that. The, the, the purpose of a public inquiry here is to see how we can get to the bottom of how this problem escalated in the broader context of of British Columbia, how we 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 go from literally a uh, a place where money laundering was was not really an issue to where we had more than seven point 
$7 billion laundered in, in uh, 2018, uh, of which over $5 billion was through the uh, housing real estate sector. Uh, the important thing there is to find out what processes uh, allow this to occur, what, what, what recommendations can be put in place to ensure this never occurs again, and why a public inquiry is so critical in this regard is, I mean, the reports that were released by both Mr. German as well as the expert panel were, were, were really quite scathing in terms of the scale of money laundering. But we have to recognize that those reports were put together in the absence of the ability to subpoena. They were put together with the absence of access to confidential documents. They were put together uh, without uh, you know, people who just could refuse to provide information. Uh, and there was no swearing uh, on affidavits. On uh, It was really put together based on publicly available information. And that's, that is important to say, though, that, but because those reports were, were skating. Yet, we'll only ever get to the bottom of this with, if we start to have the power speed, if we require people to protest to testify, and if the uh, commission has access to documents that the others haven't. This is, this is why this is a critical way forward. Uh, you and I both know uh, there is a lot of public anger out there, and to be honest with you, rightfully so. Uh, criminals, uh, yes. awful people have been running rampant and doing crazy things in our province while a large part of us have been busting our butt and bringing home the paycheck and trying to, trying to cover the bills. Totally understand that. Do you think, though, yes. that the expectations could be one of the worst enemies of the public inquiry? I saw a reaction immediately yesterday, people saying, oh, it's going to get out corruption, it's going to do this, we're going to find justice. I understand where people are coming from, but do you think those lofty yes. expectations are somewhat dangerous? I think that, um, you know, there, there's the public inquiry is, is, is separate from any kind of criminal investigations that are ongoing into various things that are ongoing. What the public inquiry will get to the bottom of is what systemic problems we have in, in our uh, institutions that have allowed this to occur. Uh, you know, we're starting to see some issues dealt with. We have legislation, uh, which we were passed, uh, recently passed, that is ensuring uh, uh, greater transparency of as to who actually owns and is selling and buying properties. Uh, that's a really, really important uh, way forward with respect to uh, the real estate sector. But there's there's many other things, and, and there's, the, you know, that we have it. So I, I would temper expectations. However, I think what we can be rest assured of is that a commission will get to the bottom of what can be done to ensure that this type of thing does not get out of control like it has before. I mean, I'm, I'm not looking for witch hunts on this. I'm looking for serious recommendations as to how British Columbia and FinTrack nationally can better improve their exchange of information. Uh, maybe there will be recommendations in terms of licensing. Uh, maybe there will be recommendations about weasel safe sector, about car sales. There will be recommendations based on the power speed and knowing exactly who did what. Sure, we might find that there are some bad apples out there that uh, are exposed as a, as a result of this, but for in, for in, in, in my view, the most important aspect is putting in place stru institutional structures to ensure that police can do their jobs, to ensure that FinTrack is doing its job, and to ensure that reporting between the federal government and the province is such that this kind of thing can't continue to go on. Are you worried at all about the political theater? I mean, there's been lots of that, but uh, once the Commission of Inquiry gets going and witnesses get hauled out, we've already seen uh, uh, the NDP putting out uh, press releases looking to pounce on the Liberals over money laundering inquiry stuff. Liberals are playing defense on it. I, I mean, I'm conscientious of the, fa of, the, of the angle we need facts and, and good information, but yes. uh, do you think that some of the political theater that we are going to see uh, perhaps could muddle these waters? Do we need to be cautious of that? 
I, I mean, our, that's our position. We, we're sort of in the press gallery box watching that games going on outside. We're not interested in playing that. Uh, that. I, I was very, uh, very pleased with the Liberal reaction. Michael Lee, their uh, Attorney General critic, came forth yesterday and was quite clear that they will work with the Commission and they support it, and, and that is the right approach. I think now is not the time to start hurling pol- uh, partisan uh, bards or, 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 or spears at each other. I think now is the time to recognize that we have uh, tripartite and support now for a public inquiry. Let the commission do its job. Uh, I would I would hope uh, that neither the BC Liberals nor the NDP uh, continue to politicize this. I, I, I think, and I think that's honestly the direction it'll head because it's in Noah's interest to do that. So I, I'm not worried that the partisan bickering will continue. I think it's just in the, you know people are positioning themselves, and and I think as we move forward, uh, yeah, that'll that'll set off to the sunset. Of course, <laughs> there will always be partisans out there. You know drawing people's attention to this, that, or the other. But I think at a political level, it would probably not be viewed as uh, very appropriate for either the BC NDP or the BC Liberals to play politics over this. Certainly, that's our position. Yesterday, Premier John Horgan was asked about uh, cost on this thing. He said, frankly, I don't know, it's going to go where it goes. Uh, Are you concerned about potential cost, or is that a drop in the bucket compared to what we've lost so far? No, and that's that's exactly the point. Is it, it probably will cost several million dollars, and that I know for many public will probably be a real eye opener. But on top, you know, this is a one-time cost of several million dollars, uh, as opposed to an annual cost of over seven billion dollars being laundered. You know, what is the cost to society of the money laundering through the real estate sector? What is the cost to society of continuing forward with this money laundering and the, and the crime associated with that? So I would suggest it's uh, this the money should be viewed as an investment in terms of the betterment of our society as opposed to a, a cost so I, I I think the I am not concerned about the cost I think it's money well spent as an investment to improve you know basically improve the institutions of our society to ensure that this kind of thing doesn't move forward uh, last question uh, before we let you go uh, if there's one aspect or one thing that you're focusing on over the next two years as we watch this thing unfold uh, what would that be so my greatest interest in this is being how the uh, the money has been laundered and affected the real estate sector because we are introducing a variety of uh, uh, we're 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 seeing a variety of um, uh, of. Problems out there in the real estate sector, we, we and that to me is is the critical aspect because that ultimately is what has helped has hurt people the most uh, in places like Kamloops. You know, your housing costs may not have directly been associated with money laundering. However, your affordability, like ours in Victoria, is has uh, has been affected because there's a lot of people in the Metro Vancouver area who are essentially cashing in because they can't afford to live there and moving to other jurisdictions and putting pressures there. So there has been a, a, a destabilization of our housing market associated with this and, and that to me is what we'll be looking at to what extent we can ensure that money laundering doesn't continue down there at the same time recognizing that we must protect those who have invested in their primary home and we have to ensure that it, you know a market crash does not occur and that, that the market is simply tempered for having that uh, that that you know dirty money from entering it and that so that's the kind of thing we have to be very careful of moving forward andrew always a pleasure thanks for taking some time thank you shane take care Appreciate that. That's Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC Green Party. Uh, We're going to take a quick break on the Woodford Show, get caught up with the news. On the other side, a very interesting guest to continue our money uh, money laundering discussion, Uh, the chair, the commissioner himself of the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry, former Attorney General Wally Opel will join us. 
News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Well, a pleasure to welcome to the program a former Attorney General of this province and uh, someone who's uh, no stranger when it comes to public inquiries of commission. A pleasure to welcome the program, Wally Opal. Good morning, Wally. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing? I am doing excellent. Uh, listen, I brought you on because I wanted a I wanted an outside perspective, uh, and as I mentioned, you're no stranger to, to running a public inquiry of commission. Um, as the province moves forward and announces that they're going to launch a public inquiry into uh, money laundering, um, what's your sort of immediate sense of how they've structured it? Does it look like something that's, that's going to work and be effective, or, or no? Well, inquiries are really investigations, and they're investigations into matters of public policy. So they have to ask themselves, are they going to learn something that they don't already know? Because a lot of evidence is out there now about money laundering and the effects of money laundering. Obviously, the public and the province wants to know more as to what happened, how did it happen, why did it go on so long, and is it still going on, and what should we do about it? So I would imagine that those would be the terms of reference that Judge Cullen would have when he decides uh, to embark on the uh, on the inquiry. The, um, the thing with the inquiry is that you get all types of evidence. A lot of it is not reliable. A lot of it is. So the difference between an inquiry and a courtroom is, in courtroom, the rules of evidence are a lot more strict. And uh, so, so what happens is that uh, in inquiries, um, you get evidence that may, in fact, be defamatory. There may be wild allegations made by people, and they may not be valid insofar as a court would not deal with them. So that's the real difference in the two. The other thing is that the by holding an inquiry, it may compromise an ongoing police investigation and because you usually don't have them going on concurrently. So that's something that they, ne they, they need to consider. Another factor here is that because there are federal uh, parties involved, that is the RCMP, the province is somewhat limited in that they can't cross-examine the RCMP about their policies, their strategies, and their training. But they can ask the police what they did do and what they didn't do when it comes to the particular issues at hand. Yeah, I think uh, one of the big question marks for me personally is how it's going to mesh uh, with the federal government, uh, with the, the case of the murdered and missing women inquiry, I note uh, there's still a fight between uh, the inquiry and the RCMP in order to get their hands on documentation. In this case, I know both the Premier and the Attorney General have said they've received assurances from Bill Blair and the Prime Minister that there'll be some cooperation federally here, but um, how much, how tricky will that be to navigate in this context? Well, I think that they can get it done because when we did the Picton inquiry, the RCMP and the federal government um, uh, cooperated with us, and we heard from the RCMP, and the officers came forward and testified in a very candid manner as to what happened. So I'm sure that they'll do that. The RCMP historically have cooperated in these matters, and uh, I know Bill Blair. I've known him for many years. He's a former police chief of Toronto, and if he says that they uh, are prepared to cooperate, I'm sure they will. 
but uh, there are certain areas that they won't be able to go into, but I think all the matters that are relevant, the commissioner will be able to go into it. The timeline, uh, theoretically, can be extended, but the timeline is two years, interim report in 18. Um, how do you feel about that? Is that an accurate enough time? Uh, is that a long well, enough time to dive into this thing or no? I, I, I can't say, and I don't think anybody can really comment at this stage. Inquiries, someone said, are like onions. You know, you start peeling away and you get peeling away and the layers keep coming. So it could go on for a lot longer. Uh, we had to ask for two extensions when we did the Picton inquiry. And that, that's not unusual for a commissioner once he or she gets going that more time is needed. So that's a possibility because it's better to do a comprehensive inquiry than to sacrifice, uh, in the interest of time, sacrifice quality. So uh, it's too early to say whether or not they'll get it done on time. If you could pass, uh, with your expertise on this, uh, if you could pass a, a word of advice on to Justice Cullen uh, that would help him, uh, what would that be? Well, I would think that, I don't think he really needs my help, but in the event that he did, I would just ask him to keep control of everything and to make sure that it moves in a timely manner because you want it to move in a reasonable manner because otherwise you lose credibility if it goes on and on and you don't get the thing done in a, in a timely way. I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised if he needed more time, but that's normal. But I'm sure that Judge Cullen, who's a very experienced judge, a lawyer, former criminal lawyer, as a prosecutor, uh, he'll get the thing done. One of the aspects that maybe this differs from, from, from your public inquiry is that uh, people want you know, consequences. They want... Uh, they want people to pay for this money laundering that they've really taken exception to. Now, a commission of inquiry uh, can't deal out criminal charges, um, but, you know, people point to the Charbonneau Commission in Quebec where, where that was certainly an aspect that spun off of it. Uh, when you're dealing with, with things that may, as you mentioned earlier, brush up against active investigations or, or perhaps find existing criminality, uh, will that add a dimension to this? Well, absolutely. But what an inquiry can do is to recommend that a police investigation take place so that charges could be considered. Yeah. So that's yeah. a possibility. Yeah. How would you... And, how, but, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say that that's really the problem that I see is that when you have an inquiry going on, it may compromise an ongoing police investigation. And I'm sure there are police investigations going on. Yeah, how, how would you deal with that? Does he have to steer clear of certain areas? or? Well, I think what you do is that uh, you're, if someone's being investigated, then that person is not going to come forward and testify. And uh, the person would then make an application uh, to not testify before the inquiry. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you are no stranger to dealing with, with politics in your commission of inquiry. Um, a different way perhaps than this one, but uh, there's going to be some politics playing out here. Uh, how, how, how best to navigate a commission inquiry in this sort of polarized political world when uh, there's going to be some play between the NDP and the Liberals on this thing? Well, I think uh, uh, they're all professional and they realize that they cannot interfere with the deliberations of uh, Judge Cullen. Judge Cullen's experience and and he uh, needs to be independent, 
and you can't interfere with his independence. And I think the people need to realize that, and I'm sure they do. On costs, Wally, I mean, the, Mr. Mr. Horgan, the Premier, has said uh, we don't know what these costs are going to be. Uh, is that the best way to approach this, rather than put a figure on the table and then have to play defense around it? Well, I think that's a good question. I think that you have to accept the fact that these inquiries cost money. But, you know, what price do you place on justice? At the end of the day, you want to see justice done. You want to see fairness done. You want to see all the evidence come out. And that may cost money, and you just have to live with that. What's your impression been of the whole money laundering thing as, as you've sat back? And, I mean, again, you're, you're an old hat at the, at the political game here, and you also come from a legal background. As you've absorbed these stories as a bystander and watched this process unfold in the media, uh, what's been your impression of, of the current situation? Well, I think it's unfortunate some political issues have arisen. I think the, the money laundering issue is too serious to have politics involved. And I think that if politics are involved, people have to set those aside and uh, get, on with, uh, uh, get on with the task at hand. And I'm sure they'll do that. The parties are professional and they know that. Wally, always a pleasure, sir. All right. uh, wish you well, okay, and, Shane. and thanks for taking some time. All right. Good to talk to you again. That's a former attorney general and MLA of this province, also the chair of the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry. Wally Opal knows a thing or two about how a public inquiry runs. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk about an award-winning program for young entrepreneurs up at TRU. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Real pleasure to welcome into the studio this morning uh, Lincoln Smith, who's TRU's Director of Research Partnerships and Enterprise Creation. That's quite a title, Lincoln. How are yeah. you? Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for having me in. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the TRU generator. I mean, you guys have obviously hauled in some uh, prestigious hardware here, but uh, what is this thing, and and uh, and, and uh, what did you think of the award? Yeah, we, it was great to get the acknowledgement of some of the great things that we're doing up there. Yeah. Um, so the TRU generator is a, a space on campus at, at TRU for the students and faculty where we help them take their innovative ideas um, and turn them into businesses and sort of coach and mentor them through. We have a number of programs. We have a, a space where they can come and have meetings, um, work with our mentors, um, and get people sort of introduced to entrepreneurship and capture some of those great business ideas that uh, are coming out of the university. Is this like a ground level, like you bring a student in and they learn how to create a business, or is this like people who have gone a little bit down the entrepreneurial path and hit a wall and been like, I've got this idea, but I don't really know how to take it the next step. Yeah. Is that more what you're catering to? Or? It's, it's both, actually. Yeah. We have students that come into the university with existing businesses. Oh. Um, you know, you've got students that come from all kinds of backgrounds that are there to upgrade or, or change path, but they have a business. They're coming to the generator for help and support on how to grow those, maybe even how to transition out of them. Uh, and then we have everything down to new students who had an idea. They're not even in the school of business. Maybe they're in arts, maybe they're in sciences, and they come up with an interesting idea. Hmm. Um, and we help them evaluate it. I think that's the biggest role we have right now is evaluating their ideas to know whether or not they should, you know, put that one to a side and start on something else um, or really sort of double down and, and pursue it. 
Yeah, is, are those hard conversations to have? I mean, I don't. I, I assume that in some of those ideas, there's been enough of an investment from the person that sometimes it may be hard to uh, look them in the eye and say, yeah, "I'm sorry, this one's not looking so hot." Yeah, it's. I think they used to be hard. Yeah. Now they're a bit easier. <laughs> um, and I think it's it's a a mind change that we've had where any of that going down the wrong road longer is a wasted. Right. opportunity to get on track that said and we, we can't just you know we don't have vision into everything so what we try to do is is have the students and the faculty research those ideas and come to that conclusion with the generator or with their mentors it's not sort of a you know dragon's den style mm. no this is the bad idea we're not going to support it it's more, okay, well, let's talk to some of your customers. Let's look at the numbers that you're, you're describing and see if those assumptions are really accurate or not. So I would say we come to the conclusion jointly. Um, so the hard conversations don't actually have to happen like that. Do you have a favorite um, story or sort of business case that, that won through that, that really sticks out in your head among all the ones you've worked with or no? Uh, not a favorite, but I think when I look at w where I see the generator really having an economic impact on Kamloops, it's the student companies that start at Tier U. Yeah. They graduate, they continue on with their business, they come back to Tier U to hire students into their business, and then come back again to do research with the university. And I, I know that sounds like a pat piece, I'm just spouting that out, but yeah. that, is, that is the ultimate scenario for the generator and the, the people coming through it. And we're starting to see that now. And the Hummingbird Drones is one that you've probably heard in the yes. news. That's a perfect example of students starting a company outside of their discipline of study, um, growing it, staying local, hiring students, um, growing the business over the last three years, uh, and, and really making a contribution to the economy in, in this area. Do you see a common uh, mistake, a roadblock, or even or on the on the pro side, something that the kids are doing right when they create a business? I mean, is there is there sort of a common um, speed bump they hit or a mistake they make? And, and conversely, is there sort of a common, you know, uh, in the formation of a good idea, is there sort of a, a good path that you generally see most students go down in, in pulling the whole thing together or no? Um, yeah, there are, there are some common things, and we, we, we're very quick to recognize and, and point those out. And the main one is talking to their customers. Um, I think, and it's, it's natural uh, human nature to have an idea and think this is the greatest idea. Otherwise, yeah. why would you be pursuing it? Yeah. Um, but you've got to sell 100 of those. You have to sell 1,000 of those. You have to sell 100,000 of those things, the widgets, the services, what they are. Um, so you need to find out if anyone else besides yourself, besides your mom and dad, besides your friends are really interested in that, in that product or service. And that's, that's what we really, if there was one thing that the generator can do for a, a young entrepreneur, it's to say, let's get out of the building. Let's go get rid of some of these assumptions you've made. Some of the hypotheses you have, test them. Yeah. And if they're right, let's keep going. If they're wrong, how do we shift? How do we make that uh, a more successful idea? How long has the generator been running, and what was the sort of impetus for putting the whole thing together to begin with? It's been running for, I'm sort of waffling here because I can't quite remember the start date. I'd say three years. Okay. Um, started out slow with the space. We started to put in programs, and then over the last two years, sort of really committed to it. In the last year, we've had some uh, 
funds from the School of Business and the School of Science and hired a coordinator to come in and help sort of push the programs, beef that up, and we're seeing a huge return on that investment as far as the number of companies, the ideas coming out, the training. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, you guys have won uh, the Entrepreneur Support Award at the uh, BC Region Startup Canada, so, which is great. Yeah. Uh, an affirmation that you're on the right track. Where do you take the program now? How do you continue to build it? Um, I think we're going to, I mean, we've, we've got the programs we wanted in place. I think we're just going to build the awareness, get more people into the room, probably have to find a, a, a bigger room or, or, <laughs> or, or go to classrooms because we're at capacity now. Yeah. How many students do you take in there? Uh, so I would say we have six companies right now, yeah. but the, the workshops and the sessions that we hold regularly, I would, we have six students in the, in the programs now working on companies, but the workshops, uh, we have anywhere from 20 to 30 people signed up. We also take people from the community as well that see the, the, uh, announcement and and then come up to campus which is always great as well awesome yeah and speaking of that is there an avenue if someone is listening is interested or goes hey i want to look more into that is there a way they can get in touch with you or find out some more information absolutely or? well i would i would start with the website so yeah. if you went to the tru website and searched for the generator we're going to come up there with the contact details and then if you were a, a community member but we're also interested in entrepreneurship also interested in in starting maybe a business that was tech-based or tech-enabled um my other gig is over at campus innovation so um that as well we could get contacted through the website there campus innovation do you see a, a bunch of different ideas do you see things that kind of run along the same vein dude you know, okay first First answer is yeah, lots of different ideas. Yeah. Um, where and I don't know how how deep we want to get into this. Where I think <laughs> Camloops is uh, real unfair advantage is the application of tech to our traditional resource sector. I'm starting to see more and more companies who have been around for 10, 20, 30 years being able to take technology and develop new products and services that mm. a work here. Um, but B, are globally exportable. And um, I think that's going to be a real growth area that we want to focus on for, for Kamloops and really the interior of BC. Can you give me an example? Just so yeah. um, Sure, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, Traxpera Technologies yeah. is a company that does uh, software for contractors as far as tracking time, tracking uh, employees, tracking equipment usage. And that was a spin-out from Summit Electric. Uh, Streamline Technologies is a spin-out from Aero Transport. Cypress Robotics is a spin-out from Axis Forestry Equipment. Nice. Um, these are examples of, you know, th those, those companies some people have heard of and will recognize, whether you think of those as traditional trades um, and resource companies. No, they're, they're tech companies now, or at least portions of them are tech companies, and those are jobs in Kamloops, in our region, um, that we're best suited to develop. I mean, that's that's what excites me about the, the future for tech and Kamloops. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Uh, I'm always fascinated by what the machine kind of spits out, right? There's so many times you see an idea and you think, oh, yeah, why didn't I think of that one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, and it's, that's hard to, and, and one of the things I'd love to do with all the students at TRU, because I think there's a lot of good ideas that never get captured and, and sort of 
taken down the road of maybe this is a business is teaching students how to evaluate those ideas so when something floats through your head you can quickly rule it out or rule it in as I should investigate this a bit further mm. um, I think that would be a really valuable skill not only for young entrepreneurs but those students that go into other businesses and have a career in other fields that skill is useful in even if you're not a, a business owner, you're an employee, that skill's super useful to be able to evaluate the opportunity. Absolutely. Lincoln, thanks for uh, popping in, man. Yeah, I really appreciate for, it. Thanks for having me. And uh, best of luck with TRU Generator. Sounds exciting. Awesome. Thanks. That was TRU's Lincoln Smith talking about the award-winning TRU Generator program for young entrepreneurs. Interesting stuff in there. And that brings to an end this edition of The Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow, except the name of the show changes. Lots to talk about inside politics coming your way tomorrow. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Ebola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.